unless it needs the wiki doo doo doo. Am I being recorded? Yeah. Okay, then it's probably fine. <laughs> All right. Hello, everyone. I'm Jason. I'm Laura. And welcome to Come Back a Star, a movie award musical extravaganza. Extravaganza. There you go. That's a better one. Produced by MGM. Produced by MGM as all things this year kind of feels like. Yeah. Uh, someone once referred to MGM back then as like the Tiffany's of movie studios. It was kind of the creme de la creme. Uh, oh. Yeah. But I think like a lot of movie studios, it had its sort of underhanded side. And I'm sure especially underhanded sides since it was so successful. But. They were really good at producing big musical extravaganzas. That's for sure. That's right. We are watching Every Best Picture, by the way. Every Best Picture winner and nominee from 1927 onwards. And in this episode, we are covering Broadway Melody, the winner for 1928-29. Should we jump right into it? Uh, Yeah, why don't we go ahead and do the summary? Okay. So MGM's first all-talking picture was also the first talkie to win Best Picture. On top of that, it was the first musical to incorporate songs into the action. Usually, I mean, it was basically the first all-talking musical, but the ones like Hollywood Review that had been released that year didn't really have like a plot to incorporate the songs into. They were just filmed vaudeville pieces. Mm. And well, that's mostly what goes on here. We do get a few scenes where the actors actually sing as part of the plot. Right. And also there's the music that's actually part of the scene as well. Right. Yeah. yeah. That's uh, for, yeah, as you point out where the presumption is the person is actually singing without any sort of orchestra, but we still hear the orchestra. So it's a weird sort of area. I'm sure for people to wrap their heads around back then, but yeah, uh, became the standard. Uh, but yeah, it's an effect that sort of keeps the tone buoyant throughout. I feel like it's the most energetic of the movies we've seen this year. And I think that's probably what kind yeah. of puts it towards the top. Yeah, it's, it's it, fun. It doesn't it doesn't bog itself down too Mm-mm. much. I don't think it, it knows it's about musicals. And while it you know goes heavy on the melodrama, it never feels like it takes itself too seriously. Yeah, I would agree with that. After some impressive overhead shots of New York City, we're put smack down in the middle of the hustle and bustle of a Broadway audition. Well, several Broadway auditions. Theatrical impresario Francis Zanfield, an analog of legendary real-life impresario Flo Ziegfeld, is putting on one of his famous reviews, and up-and-coming songwriter and performer Eddie Kearns, played by Charles King, wows the assembly with his new number, The Broadway Melody. Ding! The title... Do we even know where he is when we first see him? Because he's kind of like practicing in the studio with a whole bunch of different musical acts going on at the same time. A theater or even like a rehearsal hall. It looks almost like a big office space. Yeah, it looks like an artist collective, which Which, I kind of like. Yeah, which I like. It's a it's an interesting peek to how things were done back then. They they did a good job in this, and this is gonna be kind of important, I think, because of we're we're doing sound this year. Mm-hmm. And one of the things they did really well was this kind of crowded scene of everyone playing different pieces of music. Yeah. And you got the sense that it was busy, but not not in a way that you you couldn't hear anyone going on at all. It wasn't like a blare. 
I mean, yeah, the sound obviously still wasn't perfect, but compared to like Hollywood Review and others, the sound was a lot better, a lot clearer, a lot easier to distinguish the different parts, which is pretty crucial in a musical, especially. Yeah, I feel like that probably catapulted it up to Mm -hmm. to the winner status. Just yes. their, their mastery of sound. Well, not complete mastery, but, no, but, well, but compared to the yeah, others. At that point, it, it seemed probably like the closest they had to mastery. The, the song Broadway Melody is chosen for the review and Zanfield even decides to name the show after it. So Kearns is swarmed by hopeful young lady ladies looking for their big break, but he turns them all down. He has only two gals in mind, his fiance Harriet Hank Mahoney, and her sister Queenie, played by Bessie Love and Anita Page, respectively. Yeah, um, it's, and I think in that first scene, we do kind of see him being a flirt. Yes. To begin with. So all these other ladies are, well, not all these other ladies, two of these other ladies (laughs) want, want to take the want to take the melody and really, really bang it up, they say. Right. And uh, he's he's not immune to their charms, but it does tell them, you're like, no, 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 this is going to be for the future Mrs. Kearns. Future Mrs. Kearns. And her sister. And speaking of them, the Mahoney sisters, which is also the name of their act, they arrive in the big city from the West Coast where they've been touring. Their agent is their Uncle Jed, played by Jed Prouty, an upstanding guy whose principal gimmick is his stutter, which when I looked into it, apparently was a somewhat popular gimmick back then, as you see with Porky Pig, who was introduced as a character around then. So uh, apparently this is one of the first examples and audiences just loved his stammer. And so for a few years there, they just kept hammering away. Did not particularly find it humorous, even putting aside the whole offensive aspect of I know. playing up. People as, can't see my face, but I've just been kind of grimacing this whole yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Uncle Jed character, he's nice, he's endearing, he's funny. So adding the stammer where he, I mean, it's a lot like Porky Pig, where he like tries to say a word and can't, so he settles on an easier word. And it's just like... It kind of bogs down the pacing a bit. Yeah, and it kind of ruins the character, who is mm-hmm. otherwise, I think, a fine character. Yeah, it's he's kind a fine of, guy. He look, he sticks by his nieces, and he just seems all around nice. It's, yeah, it's it's rare to see just like a plain nice man. So they had to give him <laughs> something, I guess. I don't I, know, but yeah, I, I wish know. it hadn't been a stammer. From that, the moment that the girls arrive in their new apartment in New York, Hank asserts herself as the dominant sister to the sweeter but somewhat dopier Queenie. Although Hank is often abrasive and has a short fuse, first and foremost in her heart is her little sister's well-being. The girls are reunited with Eddie, who is instantly smitten not by his fiance but by the grown-up and gorgeous Queenie, although he is still engaged to Hank. Yeah, we, we watched this twice, and... Uh, this is my third time, <laughs> oh. which is strange. <laughs> which is strange, yeah. Um, and I feel like I got a little bit more of the sense uh, the second time around, knowing what happens right. later, that there is this kind of immediate, I guess, what they were trying to communicate as chemistry. Yes. Between the younger sister, Queenie, and, uh, and Kearns. Um, but... Uh, I think that's one of the weaker points of the movie is that 
it took me twice right. to, to notice any chemistry between them at all. And because, again, I think a lot of that might have to do, ironically, with how it was filmed, the limited cinematography. I mean, these days it would have been like maybe more of a like a soft focus or focus on both of them. But because, you know, the with the limitations of sound, everything was filmed a little like a stage play. There were close ups, but they were very quick and it was hard to determine like I, you get the sense that he's like, wow. She's a looker, but Mm -hmm. it's hard to just take from that. Like, oh, wow, he's immediately head over heels. Yeah, I think the first time I watched it, it was kind of like, oh, he's kind of creepily staring at her. Whereas second time around, I guess like, oh, he's supposed to be smitten. Right. Um, But so he came off as a creep more the first time I watched it. Yeah. And, you know, some of his following behavior doesn't automatically negate that impression no it doesn't uh he also misleads the girls into thinking that the frankly mediocre pair they are not the most talented is all set and ready to go in his brand new review but a disastrous audition in front of zanfield coupled with hank's brawl with a caddy blonde almost takes them it takes Queenie's intervention to keep them both in the show but zanfield originally only planned to keep the winsome queenie in This Mm -hmm. selfless act, which uh, Eddie observes, endears her even further to him, and he plants a decidedly unbrotherly kiss on her. Again, kind of a creeper move. Yeah, I wasn't sure if that was like a creeper move or just like just kissing people was more common back then. I think, you know, it was, but it became clear that the kiss he was giving her was more than that. And they both realized it and pulled apart. And Queenie puts her foot down because she is just as attracted to Eddie as he is to her. But she asserts that after all Hank has done for her, she wouldn't dream of taking her fiance away from her. Yeah. And again, that's not super readily apparent. The first time around, it really did read like she just didn't like this guy at all. Right. There is like when she first (laughs) sees him in the apartment, she kind of has a bit of a schoolgirl worship look on her face. But again, it's quickly cut away from so it's easy to miss and so it doesn't really become too apparent until later on right. that uh, she has the same feelings for him when she says so yeah when she actually explicitly says so <laughs> so we're then thrown straight into the hectic whirlwind of a broadway dress rehearsal here we see all the stock characters of the Ziegfeld vaudeville setting, including the flamboyant costume designer, butch dressing room attendant, pompous lead actor, and drunk lecherous backers. They're all there. <laughs> I liked I liked the backers. They they're were, fun. They're, they were fun. My favorite was Unconscious. They uh, give his nickname. I don't know if we ever actually learned his real name. He's this just little drunk guy who just is I think they do. Drunk. I think he does introduce himself by name. I don't he remember has what the some name kind is. Of like fancy, comically wealthy name, but he's drunk all the time, which is hilarious. So he's unconscious. Yeah. You know, you take our giggle. We take our giggles where we can. Oh, uh, we should also mention that Zanfield has like a a literal group of yes men oh yeah that's right just who say yes sir in unison yeah to to anything that zanfield kind of declares so i mean this movie i think more than any other we've seen definitely has its comic like purposefully comic side to it which i appreciate i appreciate the melding of the different genres here yeah it really did some work to be fun yes 
And also, uh, I read some trivia that I didn't catch this again because there's so much action going on. Speaking of unconscious, we have the flamboyant uh, costume designer, costume designer, who's you know it's played pretty heavily. Oh, this man's gay, and it's you know played for laughs and pretty offensive, but. I guess at one point it kind of looks like unconscious is going to follow him somewhat lecherously before he's pulled back. And so I thought that was a nice little pre-code nod to uh, Ah. how a little more people have always been a little more lenient about things than we were led to believe. Yeah, that's true. Yvette's teeter on the disastrous during this rehearsal. Eddie gets into a snit with a caustic conductor. Hake throws another fit when Zanfield cuts down the Mahoney sisters' appearances, and the model whose principal job is to stand atop a barge while the pompous actor sings to Cleopatra faints and is taken away. Yeah, it is such an odd, odd scene that part of this kind of part of a Hollywood review, like we saw earlier, where it's just this weird song being sung to Cleopatra by a guy dressed up as a Roman centurion. I assume it's very, supposed to be Mark Antony or somebody. Yeah, with very, very short tunic. Of course. Um, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be the it. 30s if we didn't see some gams. Oh, yeah. Well, I guess you know, late 20s. Gender but. inclusive here, you know? Exactly. <laughs> However, oh. this proves to be Queenie's big break. She stands very beautifully in the model's stead. Yeah, that's right. She really gets noticed for her skills at standing. Standing. And looking pretty while she does it. Oh, and before we go too far, there is the attempted murder by the lighting guy. Oh, that guy. Yeah. I think that this is an example of why it's maybe not the best to always be drunk at your job. Because, yeah, uh, at one point, the pompous actor is really giving the uh, lighting guy a bad time. So he just picks up the spotlight and throws it at him, right? Yeah. And that thing doesn't look light. No, that totally could have killed somebody. He was played for laughs. So, you know, this is probably yeah. before uh, OSHA. Yeah, <laughs> I think definitely. Oh, God. But uh, back to the uh, beautiful talents of the beautiful Queenie, beautifully standing there beautifully. Uh, she catches the eye of the most lecherous of the show's backers, the hilariously villainous and smarmy Jock Warner, played Hello. by Kenneth Thompson. I'm sorry, what was his catchphrase? Hello. He says that multiple times and always just like that. And it's charming. I I may have started just saying it whenever he appeared on screen. I mean, it's just like cheers when people would yell out, Norm! It's just like he shows up and, hello. (laughs) He puts the moves on Queenie, much to Eddie's chagrin. And although Queenie initially rebuffs his advances, she notices Eddie's possessive protectiveness and it makes her nervous about them falling for each other even further. So to protect both Hake's relationship and her own peace of mind, Queenie decides to let Jock pursue her. Yeah. And again, that's not super duper. All those details are not super duper apparent. Um, It's one of those things you do have to kind of think about it and try to follow the process. it all makes sense now that you say it, but while I was watching it, at least I was kind of confused. Maybe it's just me. I was kind of confused as to whether she really liked Jacques or if she I didn't really pick up on her pursuing Jacques or allowing Jacques to pursue her because she was afraid of falling for Eddie. And, you know, I like Anita Page 
I think she's fun and she's obviously very beautiful, but I think part of it might be her performance. I think this was her for, she had had a good career as a silent film actress. And I think this was her first talkie. It was the first time she sang or danced. So I sense a bit of nervousness in her performance. So I don't know if Mm -hmm. she really gets it across at all times. So that might've been a problem with it too, because you know, you don't really know how she feels because she always just seems kind of nervous and out of sorts. Yeah. You can still see, I think some less so with, uh, Broadway melody than with the other movies that we've recently mm-hmm. watched that there is still a little bit of a transition. Yes. From silent movie. I mean, the movie has inner titles. It does between like settings. I yeah. Think. Yeah. So which it wasn't, it is fine. I mean, that was fine. It didn't intrude or anything, but yeah, I think, I think actors like Paige were still kind of trying to find their footing. And so their performances might've just been a little bit off. Yeah. However, her taking up with Jock only serves to horrify Hake, who knows that Warrener has only dishonorable designs on her precious little sister. The plot quickly centers around Hank and Eddie's various efforts to get through to Queenie, and Queenie continuing to push them away. The two sisters are trying in very different ways to protect each other, and Eddie is unable to control his feelings for Queenie. So there's this kind of tension in this triangle. Hank still doesn't know that Eddie and Queenie have feelings for each other. Queenie is in denial and Eddie is just desperate to keep Jock from her. Yeah, there's that. And it's also pretty clear that, and I thought this was, we can put this into boldness when we get into Mm -hmm. it, but I thought it was interesting how Eddie is not presented as this alpha male type character. Yeah. And he is a little bit, I mean, he's frustrated because he can't take on Jacques in the way that our toxic masculinity world would have him do that. He can't go and beat him up. He can't outspend him because Jacques is very wealthy, very wealthy. So in every possible way, it's kind of like he's being outdone by this guy that he also knows is a a smarmy guy, a smarmy guy. And I think, you know, Charles King's performance is pretty likable. He's not Mm -hmm. an outstandingly handsome guy, um, but he's talented and he's likable. And I think he, much like the movie itself, he doesn't take himself too seriously. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, another actor might've tried to make Eddie more, you know, typically masculine, more alpha, but he was, I think, comfortable in the role of almost like the petulant, kind of uh jilted lover yes basically anyhow during all of this hearts break at birthday parties cakes go tragically uneaten rooms are trashed and no one is there to clean it up a quartet of guitarists sing in creepy and compelling unison and so on that's like one of the big kind of like battle of wealth issues that comes up and where uh Jacques is really laying it on thick and I believe it's, is it at the birthday party where he basically tells Queenie that he is willing to kind of keep her in a golden cage? Yes. He, he, that's where he basically propositions her. Like, do you want an an apartment of your own? He gives her a diamond bracelet. And so she's still a little oblivious, but she's getting the picture. Mm -hmm. And again, her priority is to just 
protect Hank from heartbreak. And so she's just like, if I have to throw my life away and become this guy's mistress, who he'll probably eventually discard, then I'll do that. Even though I love Eddie, Eddie loves me. I just can't break Hank's heart. So that's kind of the main conflict of this, of this soup. Yeah. And that's really the, that's why it's a big disappointment that it wasn't clear to me is that there is this big crux of that um, Queenie and Eddie both like each other and they're trying to spare Hank. And also it's just complicated, but they don't, really communicate that whole crux of the movie terribly well. Yes. And it's a little bit frustrating because I do feel like a lot of it comes down to the writing Mm -hmm. rather than the acting. I think obviously the acting had its issues as well, but for example, uh, Eddie being played by who was it again? Charles King. Yeah. Charles King. He had a lot of repeated lines, which was kind of the issue that we saw when with uh, in old Arizona as well, where it almost felt like it just wasn't as engaging because he kept saying the same things over again. Again, or, yeah, it's it's like they couldn't trust the audience to follow along without intertitles. So, I mean, while the pacing was way better oh, in yeah. this movie than the other ones that we've seen for this year. Uh, it still we, still had some issues. Queenie, don't you know this is for your own good? He doesn't care about you. You can't see that Jock Warner. I don't like that Jock Warner. Don't you tell me how to run my life. This is the last time I'm saying this. You can't tell me how to run my life. And then like one or two scenes later. Say the, the exact, exact same, same thing. And, you know, for a while, I was like, why? You know, OK, so you're scared people won't follow along without intertitles, but plays have been a thing for centuries and people have followed that fine. But honestly, I was thinking about it more. It might just be, you know, screenwriters were used to writing intertitles and now they had to figure out how to write continuous dialogue. And so I think there was a struggle for them to try to come up with as much new, fresh dialogue as possible. And so I think we get a lot of repetitive lines. And um, I I think, you know, we get a lot of more people like, Oh, Lillian Hellman and uh, and others who come in in the 30s to help kind of create the more sort of uh, modern screenwriting, modern screenwriting to kind of transition. I think they bring in a lot of like established playwrights, which, you know, is sad for the intertidal people. But, you know, it's better than the repetitive scenes we get in this and in old Arizona. Right, right. So all the action comes to a head during one of the performances when Queenie finally admits to Eddie that she loves him, but then horrified by her confession, runs off with Warner to a party. When Hank and Eddie try to stop her, Hank at last sees their true feelings for each other. And although it breaks her heart, her love for her sister wins out. She tells Eddie she never loved him and was only using him and that he'd be yellow if he didn't follow Queenie and fight Warner for her. And I liked that scene because... It was a heartbreaking scene for Hank, but she and uh, Eddie kind of almost had this comical exchange. Like, you're yellow. I ain't yellow. You're yellow. I ain't yellow. And just kind of yell at each other uh, as she like chases him out of the room. Yeah, she and that's actually part of her character that they established really early on is that Hank is very selfless. Yes. And uh, at the same time, very pushy and opinionated. Yeah, at the same. Yeah, exactly. She's not a pushover, but she is 
very, very pushy for other people. And mm-hmm. so it was kind of a nice um, reflection of her own character that she kind of, you know, sacrifices her own affection for this for this guy because it's clear that he's in love with her sister. And, you know, she's especially self- selfless when it comes to Queenie. Queenie is her whole world. And right. I guess there has been some like film criticism saying, is it incestuous? But, you know, I think that's a bit of a leap. No, it's unhealthy to be quite that in. <laughs> like she's way too obsessed with her. She own sibling, martyrizes but. herself a bit too much for her sister. But you get the sensation that they're probably were never very wealthy kids and Probably, you know, you never hear about the parents. So maybe all they had was Uncle Ned and each other. And me and the older sister, Hank, just probably has the kind of sisterly slash motherly love for, for yeah. this girl. Yeah. And so is just way more preoccupied with her happiness than her own. So she drives him out to go after her. Mm-hmm. And uh, Eddie, <laughs> he's all too ready to buy this story. He's like, it's all eager. Like, oh, you never loved me. You were only using me. Well, okie doke, here I go. As if he was waiting for an excuse to not be the yeah. bad guy. If, she and, gave him an out. Yeah, and speaking of the writing, we've been kind of down on it a little bit, but I thought that was a really well done scene yeah. with, with the acting and the writing. It really communicated something that you could see happening. Exactly, yeah. They, they're very real characters and they're not... They're not perfect. And they're not perfect, exactly. And the, and the film doesn't try to make us think they're perfect either, which I appreciate. Nobody, They're not just archetypes. No characters in this movie are truly perfect. So even even Uncle Jed, who's very amiable and gets along with everybody, he still tore off a person's wig, like for laughs. For laughs, some guys, poor guys, toupee. It's yeah, <laughs> and it just it's an example of something somebody would do. They'd get carried away with a joke and absolutely make an ass of themselves and hurt someone's feelings. Right, right. Or even I, I kind of thought that the guy who lost his wig kind of took it in good fun. Yeah, he was irritated. I mean, that's but. true. It's, you know, I think it's a good example of kind of capturing that sort of energy of, mm-hmm. you know, the drama club in high school of these like theater nerds. Oh, yeah. Trying just yeah. to have fun together. And you were going to get that a lot, I think, in the 30s uh, with uh, the Busby Ber- Berkeley musicals, which I just love. That's where I live in my head most of the time. So, <laughs> <sighs> so Hank uh, gets her Bessie Loves, probably most famous scene, and which got her uh, nominated for Best Actress for this. Uh, she uh, has a, just a breakdown in her dressing room. She's all alone. She is taking off her makeup, getting ready, but at the same time, just sobbing, kind Mm -hmm. of laughing at the same time, just kind of in hysterics, but still sort of in like an automaton way, taking off the makeup and she gets herself together just enough to uh, call Uncle Jed, who's been asking her throughout to uh, abandon Broadway and go on tour with this, uh, with this blonde he's found to uh, make up a new sister act in Peoria. And she's been denying him throughout, but she calls and just manages to tell him, yes, I'll do it before she can't talk anymore and hangs up and just submits to her tears. And it's, it's, it's a tough scene. It's a really tough scene to watch, but it's really good. I think. Yeah. I thought she did a really good job in that. You really feel for her. And she, like she has a kind of high pitched (gasps) crying. That's very realistic when you're just, Crushed. Yeah, you're crushed. You're having a breakdown. It's 
it's very touching. Yeah. Yeah. Because she's been a positive character throughout. Mm-hmm, and you, very you, chipper. You hate to uh, you hate to see her crash like like that. you understand why Queenie went to such lengths to protect her mm-hmm. from this. But speaking of Queenie, uh, the party she's at takes place in the apartment Warner has procured for her. And as payment, he expects her to sleep with him, surprising no one but Queenie. Mm-hmm. But he proceeds to try to force himself on her uh, when Eddie appears and challenges Warner. And he's promptly punched out by Warner, which reminds me a lot of uh, Oh Brother, Where Are You? Or Art Thou? Uh-huh. Uh, the scene where uh, uh, George Clooney challenges the guy who's marrying his wife and you expect big buff George Clooney to wipe him out. But then the guy like knocks him out. And it's mm-hmm. like you said, Eddie is not the alpha male here. And it's it's refreshing. No, but he's willing to give it a shot. He's willing to give it a shot. And uh, but he's literally thrown out of the party by Warner's goons. And uh, all this dis- this demonstration makes Queenie forget all her reservations. She breaks up with the Warner and in a protective tizzy follows uh, follows Eddie out. And I fe- feel like we finally get to see a little bit of the chemistry between these two characters yeah. in a really funny way yeah. because they, they really kind of play up their more comical <laughs> attributes. Eddie kind of like being a pitch doesn't like, Oh, I'm no good. And Queenie kind of being just a sweet dope. Like, don't you like me anymore? And they both finally admit their love and then they marry. Oh yeah. It's actually the, that's that was kind of like my big complaint is the chemistry in that scene should have happened throughout throughout, throughout the movie. There should have been more scenes with Eddie and Queenie that wasn't just Eddie warning her away from Warner. Yeah, exactly. It's because basically his jealousy kind of defines the relationship for most of the movie, which is not it's off putting. It is off putting. I mean, and King makes it as likable as he can. But you still get the sense that there should be more of like a rapport between them mm-hmm. and more of an established uh, relationship there. Mm-hmm. After the honeymoon, they arrive in just enough time to say goodbye to Hank. She's about to hit the road with Jed and her new stage partner, who is, ironically, the caddy blonde she's been fighting with throughout, which I thought was just a, a wonderful touch. I like yeah. that. Yeah, it was pretty funny. I mean, this... <laughs> This is the same person who ruined her audition with Zanfield. Yeah. What did she do? She put like her purse on top of the, uh, uh, the piano strings, piano strings. So like the pianist kept messing up. And uh, so they, they have like a few like rip roaring fights. Uh, mm-hmm. But now they're hitting the road together, which is just charming. It's uh, pretty funny. It's pretty great. Eddie and Queen, Queenie insist that once Hank's tour is done, she should return and live with them. Which is just kind of an uncomfortable proposal, I think. Yeah. You were engaged. Uh, So Hank wisely refuses, insisting that she was meant for a life on the road. Jed agrees, deeming her the ultimate trooper. After they leave, Queenie is wistful that Hank never seems to catch a break. But Eddie reassures her that, like Hank said, she is happiest on the road. However, we then cut to Hank in the car, a melancholy expression on her face. However, that only lasts a second. She quickly takes charge and assures her new partner that they'll soon be taking Broadway by storm again and fade out. Yes. That's Broadway Melody, folks. That is Broadway Melody. That's the Broadway 
Mellow cheer. Oh, we should also note there are two songs that uh, that the character Eddie has written for this. There's a Broadway melody and... You Were Meant For Me. You Were Meant is, For Me. It was a love song that he wrote for Queenie. Which, again, is featured in Singing in the Rain. It's the big oh, really? uh, song that Gene Kelly sings to Debbie Reynolds. We ah. need to rewatch that movie now that we're seeing all these uh, early musicals. <laughs> so you'll have more of a... It'll be funny how many uh, songs you recognize. Oh, that'll be funny. Yeah. Like uh, the scene uh, with um, Wedding of the Painted Doll. Like that is right. There's a montage in Singing in the Rain where uh, there are examples of, of uh, talkies and musicals. And you hear that melody kind of throughout. And so it was weird to hear and be like, oh, wait, I know that. Yeah. So G. Kelly obviously saw this in all the movies from back then, which is which is nice. He's a nerd just like us. Yeah. Yeah. I so like what are your it. thoughts on Broadway melody? Uh, way better than after the first time that I watched it. Frankly, um, I don't know if that's colored by the previous uh, couple, three that we have watched. Yeah. Um, it's in a way better class, I think, than what we've seen so far this year. Yeah. Yeah. It. I don't know. I, I enjoyed it the second time around. Whereas it, yeah. like the first time around, like I said, like I just didn't pick up on on any kind of chemistry. So. The scenes between uh, Eddie and Queenie were just him kind of yelling at her like a jerk. It felt like. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, why? Ugh, I stop it. You know, I like the pacing so much better here than in, in old Arizona, but it's almost a little too quick. You know, there's not enough time to really establish the relationships, I think, the way they should have been. But it's not the worst you know, no. although this is apparently the lowest rated uh, best picture winner on Rotten Tomatoes. Not a lot of people like this one. But then again, they haven't sat through in old Arizona and Hollywood reviews. So what do they know? That's true. And this was the lowest rated one of the bunch somehow. I what? Think, I think that has to do with the fact that the others were barely rated by anyone. True. And this one was probably rated by a lot of people. That has to be it. Because I can't imagine that people would like this worse than the other ones we've seen. Yeah, I've I've grown to appreciate it a lot more. I think it definitely has its issues. And like I keep saying, it's just that whole movie, the whole crux of it was building chemistry between Eddie and Queenie. And they just it didn't. It just wasn't there. But that aside, I do think. The performances were really good. Like I said, I have a few issues with Anita Page, but she's still she's not shameful or anything. She's got she's, it's, no. it's, a, it's a functional performance. But Charles King uh, was very good, very likable. And I just adore Bessie Love. I thought mm-hmm. she was just so fun and likable. Uh, little history on the three of them. So Love and Paige had the most experience in films. They were originally okay. going to have an actual vaudevillian sister act uh, playing the two sisters. Oh, interesting. But that fell through. So they just pulled the two actresses that were available. And uh, Bessie Love did her homework in that she knew that with the development of sound, she'd have to probably learn a whole new set of skills. So before she was even cast in this, she took some time off to kind of tour in a vaudevillian show playing the ukulele. Oh, really? And that's one of the reasons she was hired for this. Whereas uh, Paige 
didn't have any real singing. I think she danced a little in like Our Dancing Daughters with Joan Crawford. But and, you know, I think it kind of works because I don't think the Mahoney sisters are supposed to be that good. And they are certainly not. No, their actual act is like if cats could actually sing is what it sounds like. It's um, it's not fantastic, but it's not that bad either it's not embarrassing it's a little embarrassing in my opinion well, part of that is the piano yeah the piano uh, the was piano bad. being sabotaged does throw it off it does it does um page it's kind of sad her life was a lot like queenie's her career kind of ended in the 30s because according to her uh she would not submit to the casting couch requirements of one boy genius producer Irvi Thalberg and so he got her blacklisted which is terrible Um, Love like I said did her homework she had a lot of early successes in the 30s but after a while she just kind of went I just don't think they want me anymore so she did a few plays and then moved to uh, England and uh, got, got citizenship in the UK and sort of just would appear in bit parts and King uh yeah, he was mostly a stage star. He'd had one movie under his belt with Marion Davies, but I think this was his first uh his first talkie role. And um he just his career didn't really take off. So he kind of, I think, went back to the stage as well. They're kind of where he belongs. Kind of where I think. he belonged. He doesn't have a very memorable face. He's a pretty average looking guy. He's right. very he is, like I said, I keep saying it. He's very likable in my opinion. He had stage presence Mm -hmm. and i mean that like i could see him doing a lot better on a physical stage exactly i think that's where he belonged but you know he again i thought he was good yeah Um, i feel like he was held back by the script very much so and that's one way that he probably would have been better on a stage because you can kind of improv and flow and plus on a stage you'd actually probably have a playwright writing dialogue that you could work a little better with yeah. than what we got here. This is true. Well, all right. So that's Broadway Melody, baby. Well, let's, uh, after that discussion, let's do some rating on okay. this. On this sucker. <laughs> okay. First category. Of course, let me just review what we do here. We rate these movies on four major categories, acting, writing, cinematography, and overall. Overall being how those three elements work together. And then we have some uh, bonus point rounds, costumes and set, boldness, legacy, longevity, and now technical. Yep. Let's start off with acting. How did you feel the acting went here? I would say... Of the three central performances, Love, I think, comes off the best, mm-hmm. followed by King and then by Paige. Um, so I'll go with seven. The seven? They're all very likable and fun. And I think there was just probably a bit of uneasiness with sound, but they handle it so much better than right. a lot of other actors of that time did. Yeah, that's true. Um, I think I'm going to match your seven. Uh, it's, it's pretty good. Yeah. Um, again, they struggled with the writing, but, uh, 
the you know line delivery was fine. It was maybe a little bit overacted when they're once again trying to get Queenie oh, to gosh. not go out with Jack. I do wish the melodrama had been scraped off. <laughs> you only need one of those scenes. You, you don't need, need like four. You don't. And uh, Kenneth Thompson is Jock Warner. I mean, I love him, but hello, he, he lays it on thick. Hello. <laughs> he definitely lays it on thick. Um, but again, kind of likable in that it's so hammy. Okay. So double sevens for acting. How about for writing? Uh, you know, I think there are some obvious problems with repetitiveness. And maybe the there was a little too much action going on sometimes that you kind of lost the plot in it. However, I think the dialogue itself is a lot crisper than what we've seen so far. And, uh, well, apparently the Terrier has some opinions about this, so we should, uh, he leapt on the table once we started talking about this. So, uh, what's your opinion on the writing? What's that, boy? What's that? You think we should grade it a little more highly than, than we did for the previous ones? Yeah, I agree. Let's give it another seven. Another seven? No, let's do six. I mean, there were six. problems. Yeah, I'm going to give it a five, um, just because I felt like it was, it was pretty average. Yeah, it had it had some issues, um, but it also had some nice little jokes in there and everything like that. Uh, I can I can dock some points for uh, for the stammer gag. Oh yeah, not non gag. Some of the humor just really kind of fell flat. You know what? I think I'll do a five or two. Okay, we're we're matching so far. Yeah, actually. So. Uh, let's do cinematography. I think it was actually pretty good. And maybe this is in comparison to Hollywood Review, but it was a movie about Broadway reviews. Yeah. And I feel like the cinematography was so much better. So much better. And those gorgeous overhead shots of New York in the beginning. Yeah. Were really impressive. Very impressive. And especially when you consider it's probably up there in... And, you know, not a helicopter, I'm guessing. <laughs> I Yeah, it's uh, like I like I said, I was some flapper probably dancing on a wing like they used to while also uh, filming, probably. Um, I am going to dock a few points just because I feel like there should have been better establishing shots. Like when Eddie, Eddie and Queenie first see each other, kind of linger on that more, maybe zoom mm. in a little bit more. But um, I'm not going to dock too many. I'm going to give it seven. Seven? I'm actually going to go up to an eight. Okay, that's on this fair. one, I was I was caught between seven and eight. Um, I just think that the choreography was really good. It was really good, actually, and um, just very effective. And I guess what was one thing about it is that I didn't notice, like, oh hey, I mean, there there were a few instances, like you mentioned, but there weren't too many instances of like. Why are they shooting it this way? Right. Why, is, why is the camera so static? Yeah, one thing I really yeah, one thing I really like is that people criticize modern musicals for moving the camera too much when there's dancing so that you can't really see the dancing. But like you said, it's easy to be go too far in the other direction and be static. Whereas they got good, like unique angles of the dancing, but then they keep it there so mm-hmm. that you can at least see the movement. So yeah, yeah. yeah. They it was a pretty good job. Yeah, I thought it was pretty good. Next is overall, how well do these three elements work together? It's three kind of uh, slightly above middling elements. 
you know, I'm going to go a little repetitive here. I give it a seven, I think. I am going to repetitively agree with you and give it a seven as well, because it it's exactly that. It's kind of kind of a middling movie, maybe a, a cut above and definitely a cut above the others that we've watched recently and with them trying to master sound and everything like that. It's got good energy. It knows not to take itself too seriously. And it seems like the actors are having more fun than in the other ones, too. It was an actual comedy. Yeah, it was a comedy. It was a comedy drama. All right. Time for the bonus rounds. (laughs) Costumes and set. Five. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say it uh it excels with costumes and set yeah there's just like a lot of fantastic costumes god some of the sets just made me almost like gasp they were so cool and art deco and ornate like the curtains even right like that were just like look at those designs and yeah okay some of the costumes were goofy but in such a cool way like the monotone It's, it's a broadway review it's a broadway review and i love that at the dancers, I think of the Broadway Melody scene, had like almost Cruella DeVille, like black, white wigs that were just, yes. it just looked so cool. It was such a fun effect. So that might be the best part of the movie were the sets, the decor, the aesthetic of it. Yeah. And again, I don't want to keep bragging on it, but compared to Hollywood Review, it, it crushed Hollywood Review in just terms of splendor and they didn't mm-hmm. need like one million stars in order to get that they just needed to have some good costumes and set and some very able choreography and dancers i mean it's so funny because this had a plot whereas hollywood review did it but you get the sense that the studios were way more interested in the actors and than they were in producing a good review in hollywood review whereas yeah. in this even though there was a plot so much attention to detail was given to the Broadway scenes. That's true. They just elevated it. Yeah. And the plot also wasn't just a framing device no. for the Broadway scenes. They they kind of merged those two elements together really well. So that is five bonus points each for costumes and set. Now on to boldness. How... How brave was this movie? Did it take risks that panned out? I'm going to go ahead and say the fact that the hero was kind of this wimp. Kind of, yeah, not your standard. Earns uh, at least a point. Dashing, uh, silent hero type was, is definitely bold. Um, the fact that they make Hank so ballsy. Yeah. Um And kind of kind of end the movie on a bit of a wistful note where she's concerned. Yeah. Get it open ended. It's not a real cookie cutter ending. No, it's not. It's funny. The first time you mentioned boldness for this, I was like, I don't think so. But then when you think about little bits like that, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give it a four. Yeah. I see. Am I going to match your four? Yeah. Why not? Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll match your four. Um, and I think part of that also is I'm going to go back to the character of Jed where it would have been really easy to make him just this laughable character that has a stammer. 
But at the same time, they did do that. And that's very bad. Mm -hmm. At the same time, they did actually make him a character where he's not like a complete pushover. He's not he's not this weak person. Right. He has his own personality. He takes off people's wigs. He's fun. (laughs) People actually like him. Yeah, the, the the characters seem more like people, and yes. that shouldn't really be seen as bold, but compared to what we've had so far, where characters seem more to be just archetypes, it's it's refreshing, and I think it's bold in that they make choices that aren't always perfect. The good guys don't always make good choices. Yes. Yeah. That's That's perfectly it. Okay. So we've covered boldness with a with double fours. A lot of matching on this uh, on this review, right? Right. So legacy, you mentioned singing in the rain. Yeah, I'm going to give it honestly a five for legacy. Uh, it had quite the impact, honestly. I mean, there were other musicals that came in the 30s called the Broadway Melody of such and such a year, such and such a year, and so you have right. to trace it back to this one. And I think the way it was filmed, uh, the way, you know, the choreography, the settings kind of set the tone for future musicals. So I think it laid the groundwork for what became the modern movie musical. So, yeah, I think of the movies we've seen so far in the sound era, it's the most influential and had the most impact. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree. I'm going to give it a five as well. Good. Okay. So... Five double fives, a double four, and another double five. They're really getting the bonus points. Hey, yeah, they're, they're making it up with the extra credit. All right, longevity. How well does this movie stand up over time? Um, yeah, that's you know, I could definitely see now where the difference lies between legacy and longevity because it was influential. But there is, you know, a jaded aspect to it, looking back at it now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it does not have that kind of modern flair of Chicago or, right. you know, some of the more or singing of the rain or Fiddler on the Roof, what we think of as the great movie musicals. Um, but again, we can't help but look pat back at what we've already seen. And it's a lot more watchable than that. Um, that's not saying a lot. Yeah. I might have to go a little... Do I want to give it a two or a three? I'll be kind of give it a three. Okay. I mean, I have seen it three times. It didn't rip my hair out. So that has to say something. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine watching in old Arizona another time. Oh, <laughs> God, no. <laughs> uh, wow. So I'm going to go ahead and give it a two. Okay. Yeah, I was uh, and very that's, close. And that's basing it off of more my first viewing of it and just kind of how I, had, I struggled. It could have been clearer. Re- reading it. Yeah. Um, and you're right. It does kind of seem like more of a template for mm. later movies, but not necessarily like you don't necessarily enjoy a template for something. Right. Good. That's a very good way of putting it. Template. I would call this a very much a template movie. All right. Now we're on to the last bonus round. It's last chance for bonus points. Technical. You know, I'm going to give it a four. 
I was just about to give it a four myself. So, and my reasoning behind that, and you can agree or disagree with me, this is the start of the sound era. And I feel like it's the only movie we watched that was at least like 90, 95% successful with sound. And I'm surprised, honestly, they did so well with the seeds of Eddie singing Broadway melody to uh, Queenie and Hank in the apartment. And then later on when he sings, you were meant for me to Queenie in the apartment Mm -hmm. and incorporating the orchestral arrangements. I expected some, you'd expect something like that in this early in the process of sound to be clunkier, but it would actually work surprisingly well. So, you know, I think they, they did good. They did. We didn't, we didn't need subtitles. Mm -mm. No, we didn't. The only times that you man, you noticed that it was early sound was when someone kind of was talking down a hallway Right. towards the back of the set where you wouldn't have had microphones but everyone's voice was captured mm-hmm. everyone's voice was was good yeah there were no real sour notes i think uh bessie love uh did the best of the actresses in it she has i was one of the lucky silent actresses i think who had a pretty good voice uh, Anita Page, maybe not so much, but again, she certainly didn't disgrace herself. Yeah. And I mean, I think Charles King probably had the best voice of any of them being a trained singer. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> All right. So let's tally up the, let's tally the ratings here. Um, I've been keeping track as we go along. And it has... Thanks largely to these very high bonus points and 94 total. Holy cow. I knew it was going to rate higher than the others, but that's way higher than I thought. Which puts it right above by one point above the racket. Interesting. I would say racket is the better movie, honestly, but. Yeah, I mean, I would agree, but at the same time, I don't. I don't think we wildly got it wrong. No, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think we're probably being kinder to this movie than in the grand scheme of things that me, it might deserve just because we've watched some stinkers lately. That's true. And we have an extra bonus point round. I just yeah. remembered that. Oh, that's a good point. That's a little, yeah, kind of. There, There is no technical no round balance. for the silent movie. So, oops. No. Oh, well. It, uh, it absolutely crushed all of the other nominees for 28 29 i think it's safe to say i'll nominate it for a notsker all right so that's we're going to the final question is it is it ready i think it's ready i think it's broadway ready all right so we are both going to agree and officially nominate it for the 28 29 notsker a movie award party award for movies let's sell it and, to zanfield yeah and we can sell it to zanfield uh, which makes it also the only nominee, unless you want to change your mind on Alibi. <sighs> After this, I'm really thinking no on Alibi. It just... I have mixed feelings about Alibi. I just don't know where to place it or what to think of it. I mm. really don't. I think it just... <sighs> It had some really good bits. You know, I think I might nominate it just because it did try for some things and it wasn't as repetitive as the as in old Arizona. It wasn't uh, 
as muddled as Broadway Review. I mean, it, even the even Alibi had better choreography in their dancing scenes in Hollywood Review. Uh, so I, you know, I think just to keep things interesting, I'll nominate Alibi. Have a little bit of a competition there. Yeah, just a little confident. Don't want Broadway Melody to get too smug. All right. So we do have two competitors now. We have Alibi and we have Broadway Melody for our roundup, which will be our next episode. Where we will probably also discuss one movie that unfortunately we can't see because there is no surviving print. That's true. We'll have to take a moment to uh, pour one out for The Patriot. The Patriot. Which looks, I'm very heartbroken. And my, and my voice broke at that moment, too. What a coincidence. I'm heartbroken. We can't see it because the pictures I've seen and what I've read of the plot sounds really interesting and cool. Yeah. Was it a silent one or was it? I think it might have been a silent one. I'll have to double check. But so it's it's too bad. The last silent film probably. Well, not the last silent film to be nominated for an Oscar because I think we get City Lights in the 30s. And of course, The Artist won a couple years ago. But those were more gimmicks and like true <laughs> silent films. I mean, not to knock either film, but it was, you know, a big deal that they were silent. Whereas this is the last like regular silent film probably right that was nominated so that's too bad i wish we could see it maybe someday who knows if this podcast this little old podcast takes off it'll get enough attention and all these movies will be released on criterion right 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 maybe well they'll need to find surviving prints first which oh, you know can happen it happened yeah. to metropolis so oh that's right yeah, we'll have to talk about that in more depth. We should have a Metropolis episode. We should have like an episode where we talk about just some of our favorite silent films that because the vast, vast majority of them were never nominated for an Oscar. Right. That's true. So, I mean, a lot of them weren't American for once. So. It's true. True. <laughs> so they wouldn't be uh, eligible for, yeah, the, it's a pretty, for the Oscar. The Oscars have always been pretty xenophobic and especially. In, oh, that's uh, part of it's part of the um, requirements, at least at this point that we're mm-hmm. talking about, is that it does have to be produced or released in the uh, United States. Yeah, we should also have just an episode maybe per decade where we look at some of the best uh, foreign made films of that time that we think. Ooh, maybe yeah, should have been I nominated. like that. It's going to be all Weimar all the time. So. <laughs> at this point in time, yes. Um, I think around the 40s and 50s, we'll definitely have a lot of a. Uh, well, maybe, maybe more of the 50s, uh, uh, some Japanese films. Oh, definitely. OK. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. Broadway Melody. Idea. Broadway Melody did a good job. You did a good job. Good job. You, you little you little musical. You you scamp. You scamp. It's, it's a scamp. It's like the scrappiest, scampiest of the movies we've watched. It You just feel good when you think about it. It, it didn't embarrass itself. It was a good. It was a, I think I'd say it's a good movie. Yeah. Yeah, I'll go ahead and agree with you. Yeah. And that's it for this episode. If you would like to, please share this with your friends. We'd like to get some Do more it. listeners. And you can catch us on Twitter yeah. at Come Back a Star. Uh, we want to thank uh, the Pontifex podcast, actually, because they are going to be releasing one of our demos that's soon. Right. And they gave us a shout out, <gasps> which is super nice of them. And I think that's it for the episode and our announcements. I hope that you guys will tune in next week for our 1928-29 roundup. Yeah. And until then, um, curtains down. Take it sleazy. (laughs) I feel like that's a good send-off for Broadway Melody, right? (laughs) 
There you go. <laughs> Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>